I was raised to believe that the Bible is a book of morals, and that it defines good versus evil for us within its pages. In the Garden of Eden, however, there were two trees. The tree that brought death was the tree that contained the question of morals, good versus evil. The other tree was a tree that brought life to all the aid of its fruit, the tree of life. Is it possible that we've been asking the wrong questions, chasing the wrong thing by seeking to be moral? Let's run an experiment. Rather than seeking to define and live by good versus evil, let's flip the question. Let's define life instead. But to do that, we must first seek it out. So join us as we dare our as we seek life. Hey everybody, welcome to Deresh Chai. Aaron Bishop here once again with the Deresh Chai experiment. We're going through scripture. We are trying to define the things of life using patterns that we see in life and uh, apply them to the pages and the words of scripture and uh, see what we can discover from them. See if it is, if this is actually a real thing. If it, defining things according to life and death can change our perspective on what it is the scripture says and to help us understand better who it is this God that we serve. So two weeks ago, we began a cycle of stories and scriptures that sketches for us a pattern. And as we examine it, we notice that this pattern can be mapped onto not just later events, but previous events, things that we've already read. We're in chapter 8 of Genesis, beginning in verse 15. We'll be going through chapter 9 and verse 17 today. This claim that the pattern that we're examining here between chapter 6 and 11 of Genesis is, creates a pattern for us that we can map onto the first five chapters of Genesis can seem a bit sensational to us. I mean, how is it that this pattern has already been developed and is then something that we can then see occurring later in Scripture, something that we can notice? Well, let's look at the pattern, let's fully define the pattern, and then let's see if this claim is actually true, if it's something that holds water. So this pattern began with justice, what some might call karma. That term, as I described earlier, isn't an accurate description of what's going on here. That term has been hijacked, and the meaning of it has become something completely different than what it was originally in the Hindu. So we can loosely call it karma, but it's not that Hindu idea of karma. It's just this idea of what goes around comes around. The things that you do will be visited back on you. And so this justice that occurred in the pages of Scripture in the flood as we looked at it, we noticed that it was something that occurred through an act of uncreation, a corruption that occurred. And in that uncreation, in that corruption, one man and his family and some animals were singled out according to kind. And they were separated from the midst of everything that was to be destroyed on the earth. Those who were separated out from the masses were then taken to this place where they were protected and as creation was reversed and the waters of the flood descended on the earth. The pattern then continues as the separation that was reversed, those things that were joined back together, was once again then reenacted through an act of separation. And recreation occurs, or an act of new creation, happening in the place where the uncreation had just occurred. It's not in a new place. It's not in a new realm. It's a new means or method of existence in the same place. And we're given a glimpse through that of a future that is yet future to us, something that is yet to come, this new creation that we hope for. This week, we will continue in the pattern as it moves to the next cycle on the grand scale. 
Once again, we've talked about how new creation is realized in the heart of a person. It can be realized in a community, it can be realized in a nation or an entire planet. But then comes a topic after this new creation, what we're going to talk about today. A topic that is so absolutely central to everything else we're going to read in Scripture. In fact, it's two topics that we're going to talk about today. And those two topics are intricately intertwined with each other. Really can't separate the one from the other. And doing so leaves you with some sort of half-life experience, some sort of half-fulfilled existence, if you will. In the past, I've also spent some time developing various tools that we can use to help us to better understand the text and then to apply those to glean from the text meanings that really speak to us today. And as we've looked, we've seen that Scripture is really this, this long commentary on human nature, on what it is, the ways that we want to act, and the ways that we do act, and the, the correct and incorrect ways of manifesting God's image in the world. And those tools that we've looked at were the repeated word, words repeated over and over, a phrase that's repeated over and over, back to back. Metaphors, word pictures that give us a snippet of text that expands into this entire realm of, of idea. Word trains, which is a series of words used in conjunction or a series of ideas that are, develop a pattern of how things can flow, how various things, like example was temptation. Uh, then we looked at puzzle pieces, taking isolated chunks and defining various pieces and figuring out what's missing in the story, and then trying to use our own experience to fill in those missing pieces, not as a way to say that that is what happened, but more as a way of understanding ourselves and seeing ourselves in the text, allowing our own experience to participate in the story. And then we talked about finally the clue finding, the looking into scripture and treating it as though it is a a riddle to be solved being very aware of the words and the possible meanings of each of the words and looking at the ways of interaction and considering various forms of context in the text that can help to point us to some greater and deeper meaning. These tools, as you begin to use them, they do take some time to develop. But once they're developed, they can become highly useful. And you may find that in places in Scripture where you once saw only one thing that's literally on the page, you may find an entire world of concept and idea exploding into the page in a depth that was not there before. Unfortunately, our Western mindset tends to have us focusing on the literal, the historical, and even the sensational parts of Scripture, and using those as the defining pieces of what Scripture is really talking about. But as we continue, I think you'll notice that that's not what Scripture is talking about. Not that scripture doesn't comment on those things, but that it's not necessarily highlighting those things. Using these tools, we can look at what it is that the author is attempting to highlight in the text, because they're well aware of these conventions. These are things that were in wide use in the ancient world. And with scripture's just overwhelming use of them, way above any other kind of ancient text, we can catch a glimpse of the depth of its meaning that supersedes any other ancient documents. We as the reader, we have to pay very close attention to the words, and we have to consider each of the words very carefully, and we have to look at what the, the language is that's behind the word, because many times our own English translations, our own English ways of thinking that have been imposed upon the text, they don't serve 
the text. They don't serve us as the people of the text. So we're going to use a couple of these methods today. We're going to examine various ways that these tools can help us to pull some really interesting things from Scripture and help us to develop some really awesome ideas and to give us a foundation for things that we can then talk about later in Scripture. Because here in the beginning, we're getting a lot of foundations. We're going to build on those foundations. Today, we're going to build the foundations. We're going to examine some topics at the foundational level that then at later points we're going to really extrapolate and dig into in a much deeper way. So go ahead and pick up your Bibles and let's read Genesis 8 verse 15 through 9 verse 17 and then talk about what it is that we can learn from this text. Okay, Genesis 8 starting in verse 15. And Elohim spoke to Noah saying, Go out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every life form of all flesh that is with you, of birds, of cattle, and all creeping creatures, the creeping creatures on the earth, and let them teem on the earth and bear and increase on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping creature, and every bird, whatever creeps on the earth according to their kinds, went out of the ark. And Noah built an altar to Hashem, and took of every clean beast and of every clean bird, and offered ascending offerings on the altar. And Hashem smelled a soothing fragrance, and Hashem said in his heart, Never again shall I curse the ground because of man, although the inclination of man's heart is evil from his youth, and never again strike all living creatures as I have done. As long as the earth remains, seed time and harvest, and cold and heat, and summer and winter, and day and night shall not cease. And Elohim blessed Noah and his sons, and said to them, Be fruitful, and increase, and fill the earth. And the fear of you and the dread of you is on every beast of the earth, on every bird of the heavens, on all that creeps on the ground, and on all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they have been given. Every creeping creature that lives is food for you. I have given you all, as I gave the green plants. But do not eat flesh with its life, its blood. But only your blood for your lives I require. From the hand of every beast I require it, and from the hand of a man. From the hand of every man's brother I require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood is shed. For in the image of Elohim he has made man. As for you, be fruitful and increase. Bring forth teemingly in the earth and increase in it. And Elohim spoke to Noah and to his sons with him, saying, And I, see, I establish my covenant with you and with your seed after you, and with every living being that is with you of the birds, of the cattle, and of every beast of the earth with you, of all that go out of the ark, every beast of the earth. And I shall establish my covenant with you, and never again is all flesh cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again is there a flood to destroy the earth. And Elohim said, This is the sign of the covenant which I make between me and you and every living being that is with you for all generations to come. I shall set my rainbow in the cloud, and it shall be for the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. And it shall be, when I bring a cloud over the earth, that the rainbow shall be seen in the cloud. And I shall remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living being of all flesh. And never again let the waters become a flood to destroy all flesh. And the rainbow shall be in the cloud, and I shall see it, to remember the everlasting covenant between Elohim and every living being of all flesh that is on the earth. And Elohim said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. 
So the world has ended. It's been remade anew. In the last Parsha, Noah and his family were still on the ark, and the waters and the earth had finally dried up. And the first thing that occurs in this Parsha is that God tells Noah and his family to exit the ark. And so Noah and his family, they exit the ark. Noah builds an altar and sacrifices of every clean animal. Now, wait a minute. What's going on here? These animals, these animals had just been saved from certain destruction in order to make it through to the other side of this onslaught, of this destruction. And they're promptly slaughtered when they get there? The answer to this is, yeah, apparently so. The natural question that follows is, is, well, don't animals also have life? Don't they have life just as humans have life? And if we're seeking life, shouldn't we respect the lives of beasts, of animals? In fact, if we really think about it, this, the entire concept of sacrifice seems to operate in contradiction with this whole experiment that we're engaged in. Might as well just give it up now, right? Because sacrifice is taking life. So... How can we do this? How can we continue on and be intellectually honest? How can we say that, one, God is a God of life if he requires, or is pleased by, even, the death of any animal for any reason? Or, two, that the scale of judgment that we should use in defining the world around us is one that is life versus death? If, on that scale, there is death that is a requirement for life to exist? These these are difficult questions, and we, we have to wrestle with those questions if we're to be intellectually honest in this experiment. I'm not going to simply give up on the experiment because there seems to be some contradiction. We need to explore these ideas and understand them better, and we may find that on the other side that there is a life to be found within this concept of sacrifice. I'm not even sure that I can fully conceptualize the answer to this question at this point in the experiment. But this Parsha does give us a bit of a foundation that we can build our judgment upon. In chapter 9, 5 through 6, a statement is made that is repeated from Genesis 1, and I think that that gives us the foundation that we can build future assessments on, future thoughts on. One is that the blood of a man's life will be required from anyone who spills it, whether that be man or beast. Okay, so we need to catch that. Even beasts will be responsible for the death of a man, but men will not be responsible for the death of a beast. Right there, we seem to have some sort of separation between the two, that the life of a beast, while still important in God's eyes, is not to the same level as the life of a man. Why is that? What reason is given in the text for this difference between man and beast? Well, man was created in God's image. Right there, we see that this difference between man and beast in God's eyes. Man is created in God's image. Beast, not so much. Maybe not to the same extent, perhaps. I don't know. But I don't think we're given that deep of an explanation in Scripture. But right here, we see this difference between man and beast. Man is made in the image of God. We can guess at how humans are in the image of God and beasts are not. I mean, humans are capable of thought-based decisions, rather than making decisions based solely on instinct, as seems to be the case with animals. But then there are some exceptions to that. There do seem to be some animals who can look at a situation and think things through a little bit, maybe on a very base level. Humans are creative. It's one example that I've heard. Is humans have the creative ability 
And we can go out into this world, we can plan something and create things out of its constituent parts. That would seem to hold water, except for that we have actually recorded animals, monkeys, gorillas, building things, building fires, building little contraptions or traps. So that doesn't seem to hold water either. Perhaps it's that humans think ahead, we plan, we prepare for the future rather than simply gratifying our desires in the moment. And that would seem to hold water except for when we consider ants, right? The story of the ant and the grasshopper, the ant planned ahead and the grasshopper didn't. And squirrels, I mean, what do we see squirrels do? They go, they get things and they save them for a future date. Now that's still part of their their instinctual operating system, if you will, but it's a planning part of their instinct. So I don't think planning for the future is how we can separate man and beast. There's got to be something that humans have inherently that beasts don't. I think that perhaps the main difference, the significant difference between man and beast, the one that really separates us from them, is our ability to speak. Our ability to speak words. How is it the scripture begins? And God said. The very first thing we learn about God is that he speaks words, right? Well, humans speak words. Animals don't. They can mimic word sounds, but they don't know what they're saying. Like the parrot. The parrot can mimic human sounds. It can mimic human words, but it, it doesn't really speak as a human does. And through scripture, as we're going to see, words and sounds and listening are the central tenet, the, the very foundational means of faith, of belief. How is faith found after all? Faith is through hearing and hearing through the word of God, right? Hearing through words. That's where faith is found. And so I think it's words that separate man and beast. It's our ability to communicate, to express ideas. Death and life are found in the tongue, as Proverbs says. There's, there's so many other scriptures we could talk about. as It pertains to speaking and hearing and doing and, and living and expressing. And that's something that animals don't. And in fact, this whole cycle is going to end with a splitting of words, a splitting of languages, of tongues, which is going to be really profound. And I think that that really helps us to understand this difference between man and beast. Uh, regardless, that's something that we will, that we can talk about in the future. One thing that we have to realize, especially when we come to the concept of sacrifice, is that the pages of scripture are not attempting to define for us a utopia scenario. Yes, they are in the future. Sometime in the future, this, this utopian scenario will come about because of God's redemption, his plan to bring Eden back to earth. The Torah itself, the instructions that God gives us for life, they are instructions for how we are to live the ideal way for man to live in a fallen world. There are instructions given that aren't necessarily good things. Things like divorce. There's an allowance made for it in Torah and God's instruction. Why? Well, we read from Yeshua, it's because men have hard hearts. And so God gives his Torah as a way of helping us to live as best as we can in this fallen and corrupt world with our own hard hearts. And it gives us a, a path through this madness, if you will. And one of those ideas, one of those things that uh, can seem contrary to this utopian ideal is this concept of sacrifice. Animal sacrifice specifically. There's something 
much deeper going on in animal sacrifice, I think, than simply the death of an animal. But that's something that we'll get into in real depth in Leviticus. So we've got some time. For now, let's just examine the concept of sacrifice itself. What is sacrifice? What is it on a, on a philosophical level? All through scripture, we see of sacrifice as something that's spoken of, and it's something that God requires of his people. It's giving something of value from yourself in order to gain a benefit that you would not otherwise have. Jordan Peterson, a psychologist from Canada, he tends to be hated by some people and absolutely loved by other people. I find him to be very interesting. He's got some really fascinating ideas. There's other places where uh, he, you know, he misses the bar, but you can't agree with everyone, right? But he looks at sacrifice from this idea of storing up potential for future use, for future benefit. If I give of myself now, then this future, this ephemeral, intangible place that I will one day occupy will be better than what I live in now, or will be prepared for in case of something bad happening. And from this standpoint, simple work is a form of sacrifice, a giving of my present energy, something of value to me. It's giving of our time, a very prized and limited commodity, in order to gain some future benefit in our society that's pay, that we can then use to, to gain something. Or it's an item that we've created that will help our future, or will help us to express ourselves. Or it's something that's been organized when you're cleaning a house or a room. You're expending your energies now in order to have a more manageable experience in the future. In this way, I think all sacrifice can be defined. When you give money to a poor person, why do you do that? Because you're commanded to. Fantastic. That, that's, that's a good, thoughtless, base way to approach it. But why do we give to poor people? Why do we give to the widows and the orphans? Because it makes our society that much better. It makes our world that much better. It builds up all those around us, people that we are connected to, people that we interact with. Why do I give time and energy to an employer? Well, because the employer returns time for this thing called money, which we can then use for goods and services that we will require in the future. Things that I need in order for myself to survive. Why do we give money to churches and to pastors? Why were tithes given to the Levites, according to Numbers 18? Well, it's because their role is to improve my personal and the societal spiritual standing, to improve the moral standing, if you will, of those who operate around you. The Levite especially, the priest, represents the individual to God and represents God to the individual. They're this conduit, this, this in-between, the, this spiritual and our physical existence. And so much of their time is spent in this effort of representing God to the people and the people to God and, and teaching and helping us to understand how, how to live lives that are uh, beautiful before God, the way to properly image God into the world. And they spend so much time on this that there's very little time left to seek their own benefit. If we don't give them something, then they have nothing. They end up dying of starvation. And then all of society suffers. Everybody suffers in that case. In fact, the Levites, they were not given an inheritance of land. Everything that they had came from the people, 
came from gifts, from sacrifices that were made to the Levites, or to God, that the Levites would get a share in. Giving in this way to spiritual leaders, it improves all of us. It enables a growth in relationship with God. It enables a societal community to grow around a central idea that is worth striving towards. So if we look at this various ideas of sacrifice, we would see that the idea is it's not something that's uniquely Judeo-Christian. In fact, every single ancient culture engaged in sacrifice. Muslims today still engage in animal sacrifice in the Middle East. In Hinduism as well, they engaged in animal sacrifice. Some ancient religions even went so far as to make human sacrifices, something that is totally off the books from God's point of view, even though there are a few examples of people doing such a thing in Scripture. In fact, Sacrifice isn't even solely a religious idea. The atheist philosopher Ayn Rand, she speaks of sacrifice in her book, The Virtues of Selfishness. Wait a minute, selfishness, sacrifice, how do those things work together? Well, in this work, she describes that the truly selfish person, the person that's looking out for their own well-being and benefit, will invariably look to improve the lives of those around them. They will give of what they have in order to bring up others so that their own existence is improved. The sacrifice itself is a human ideal. It's not simply a Christian ideal or a Jewish ideal or um, even a religious ideal. It's a human ideal. It's, it's part of our human existence is this idea of sacrifice. Even these atheistic, selfish-based philosophies recognize the utility of sacrifice of one's own goods for the benefit of others. However, Ayn Rand, in her philosophy, The Virtues of Selfishness, she makes a distinction on when sacrifice should be engaged in, when charitable giving should be participated in, if you will. And she says that a person shouldn't give to others if it will prevent them from living out their own well-being. In other words, if you're not able to take care of yourself, don't give to others. If you can't afford it, don't sacrifice. That's her bottom line. Scripture disagrees strongly with Ayn Rand on this point. Very much so. In fact, her, her whole selfishness argument falls apart when you compare it to Scripture. I'm not espousing her ideals. I'm just trying to show how sacrifice itself is something that's that's universally human. So what do we see of Noah here? In this example, we see how Noah completely contradicts this Ayn Randian philosophy. There were only seven pairs of clean animals on the ark. There's not a whole lot there. If Rand were alive to advise Noah, she would have said, don't sacrifice even one because you might endanger the entire species. And if you endanger the entire species, you endanger the entire world, you endanger yourself, you hurt yourself in some way. That's not an attitude that a believer in the God of the Bible should take, though. Let's look at Yeshua's example, because he is, in fact, God's example for us. Did he sacrifice in a way that endangered his future? Did he give to the point of pain? What was his model and his example? He gave of himself to the point of death. That's pretty significant. That That's huge. That's so contrary to Rand's philosophy. That he would give of himself 
to the point where he himself dies, knowing that in his death the world is made better. I think that this idea is perhaps, it, well, it's well stated. I don't know if it's the best way of stating it, but it's really well stated by C.S. Lewis in his in the book New Christianity. In this book he states, I do not believe that one can settle how much we ought to give. I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. In other words, if our expenditure on comforts and luxuries and amusements, etc., is up to the standard common among those with the same income as our own, we're probably giving away too little. If our charities do not pinch or hamper us, I should say that they are too small. There ought to be things that we should like to do and cannot do, because our charitable expenditure excludes them. If it doesn't hurt and doesn't endanger your own future well-being in some way, can it truly be said to be sacrifice? And therein, I think, lies the difference between sacrifice and charitable giving. With a sacrifice, you may not be able to afford the thing that you are giving away. But that's okay, because we know something Ayn Rand did not know. And that's that God is the source of all things. He is our sole provider, not us. We are to work, yes. That was true in the garden before the fall. We are to work in this world. But what are we to work towards? Is it to work towards a retirement, towards a time when we can just sit around and do nothing? There is an allowance for that in Scripture. The elderly are to be cared for by the young once they can't work anymore. But Matthew six thirty-one through 33 Yeshua addresses this in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. And he says, Do not worry then, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For all these the nations seek. And your heavenly Father knows that you need all these, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and these will be added to you. So when we work, what are we to work for? What is to be our driving purpose in our work? It's to be the kingdom of God. In everything we do, every little minutia of our daily existence is to be geared towards building God's kingdom. If we do this, God will provide for our basic needs. We don't have to worry about providing for ourselves in that, because we are working. We are working towards His kingdom. Paul puts it this way in Ephesians 6, verses 5-7. through 7. He says, Servants, obey your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling and sincerity of heart, as to Messiah, not with eye service as men-pleasers, but as servants of Messiah, doing the desire of God from the inner self, rendering service with pleasure as to the Master, and not to men. Work as though everything you do is building the kingdom of God. Even if you're scrubbing a toilet. Even if you're wiping up vomit. Even if you're doing the most disgusting thing on the earth. Even if you're just trying to get a paycheck. Don't work for the paycheck. Work for the kingdom of God. The paycheck is that benefit that you get from working for the kingdom of God. And sacrifice is part of that essential service. It's the first of those two ideals that I talked about earlier, those two ideals that will go hand in hand. The sacrifice is essential for our own well-being, and all cultures have recognized this to one degree or another. The sacrifice itself is a must when it comes to having a relationship with the God of the Bible. Giving of yourself, because he gave of himself for our benefit. We respond in kind by giving of ourselves for the benefit of his kingdom.
So as we continue through the end of chapter 8, we read in verse 21 that the inclination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Well, Jeremiah 17.9 echoes this idea when it says that the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Mark 7.21, Yeshua states that it is from the heart of man that wickedness proceeds. And Romans 3 talks about how there is none righteous and all have done wickedly. Man is naturally in darkness, and light must be introduced into man in order for him to come out of darkness. Man is naturally in a body of death, and life must be bestowed to him in order for us to escape to life. Man, who knows good and evil, is inclined towards evil. It doesn't say that man is inclined towards good. Yeshua says that there is none good and yet we pursue it. Even with, catch this, even with man inclined towards evil in his heart at all times, man is still created in the image of God. Is the image of God something that's good? If man's heart is constantly evil and yet still in the image of God, is this what we are supposed to seek in order to bear his image? Hmm. Think on that. this piece of evidence right here is one of the ones that really got me thinking on this entire idea of life versus death as opposed to good versus evil. A good itself, not that it's something that we shouldn't strive for. Good, I think, is a symptom of a larger status. Good is not what connects us to God, and it's not how we image God in the world. It is a overflowing and outpouring of properly acting in that image. Does that make sense? Good isn't the end in itself, if you will. Being moral isn't the end. Isn't the goal that we need to seek for. It's simply something that comes naturally when we have a proper goal, when we have a proper focus. I think that that might be life. That's what we're trying to figure out. If we go back to Genesis 1, being made in the image of God predated the definition of good versus evil. The image of God has nothing to do with good versus evil. The image of God came after the breath of life. Rolling all of this together and considering that as a whole, I think it really helps us to understand that life, if we search for it, we will naturally attain good. It will be part of the overflowing of ourselves, is acting in a good and right and proper way. But we got to keep our eyes on the, the right focus. Anyway, let's just appreciate for now that the problem of the world, it's not a right people kind of problem. And that's really what the story of Noah describes to us. If the problem with the world were simply a right people kind of problem, if it's simply a matter of getting rid of all the wrong, evil, gross people and acting judgment on all those who've turned their backs on God, new creation would have been guaranteed the moment Noah stepped off the ark. The new Eden is right around the corner at that point. If it's just getting rid of all the bad people. But the problem in the world isn't the quality of one kind of person over another. We're all in that same quality. The problem is with the sin that's natural and inherent in our very existence. 
as long as the sin in ourselves is not dealt with, as long as evil and corruption remain in the human heart, evil and corruption remain in the world. Simply wiping out the bad people didn't fix anything. It just moved it into a new phase. So as chapter 8 closes, we read that as long as the earth remains, seed time and harvest, summer and winter, these cycles of life, they'll continue as long as the earth remains. Now, these words, uh, seed time, harvest, uh, the cycles of life, they should get us thinking back to the days of creation because we've just seen creation made anew, right? We've seen the waters being separated again and land and sea being separated again and so on and so forth. Well, the cycles of life were created on day four. And it seems as though God is closing off here in the end of chapter eight, this cycle of new creation. He's The new creation has been established with these cycles and with the affirmation that these cycles aren't going to change again. And then begins chapter 9. And just as with the creation in the beginning, the last part of the creation was a blessing of men. And we actually read nearly the same blessings that were in chapter 1 to the man that was created in the garden. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. It's Genesis 1 right there. That's an exact quote. But rather than rule over the beasts, as was given in chapter 1, now the beasts will fear you. Rather than simply eating seed-bearing fruit, now beasts also are your food. Part of this new creation comes with some changes in how humans operate in the world. But even in all this, even with all these changes humans still bear the image of God. One thing we should notice is that just as in chapter 1 and 2 of Genesis, dietary instructions are given here. In fact, all through scripture, humans are told what is food and what is not food. If you've been told that God doesn't care what you eat, really stop and consider and think about that again. What was the one command given in the garden? Don't eat something. A dietary command. What's the very first thing that occurs here? Don't eat certain things. Don't eat flesh with blood in it. Acts 15, what, what are part of the, um, the four rules that are the basis for entering into Christian community? Don't eat certain things. Don't eat food offered to idols. Don't eat what's strangled and don't eat things with blood in them. Food is something that's important to God. Now we'll get into this a whole lot more. What exactly is the current definition of food? How did it change with Yeshua? We'll talk about that a lot more at a later date. For now, just recognize that even in the New Testament era, if you want to call it that, there is dietary restrictions. It's not that God doesn't care what you eat. It's that he has defined what is food. And we need to accept his definition of what is food. Has that definition changed with the New Testament? We'll talk about that a long time down the road. Something else that we see instituted in this chapter is capital punishment. If a person takes the life of another person, then it is the duty of man, of humans, to repay that person in kind. But doing so, in its proper and prescribed way, is not murder. But neither is it described as any kind of mob rule or justice. 
there is a sequence of steps that is to be gone through before the death penalty can be ascribed to anyone. It's only in the cases of perverted justice do we see mob rule execution occur in Scripture. So usually when someone says, oh, do you still condone stoning? Should we stone our children? They're usually thinking of some sort of mob rule mentality where, oh, the kid disobeyed me. Let's take him out back and just pelt him with stones. No jury, no trial, no previous experience with this, no no continuing rebellion in the heart of the child. Just, oh, single disobedience, let's go mob rule, destroy the, destroy the kid. That's usually what enters into our mind because we think of, you know, ancient society. We think of things like the Salem witch trials. We think of these times in our own history where mob rule has ruled, lynchings, so on and so forth. And we say, well, that must be how these ancient people acted. Uh, but that's not true. Think, think on the times that mob rule happens in the Bible. Think of Yeshua. Stephen, the woman caught in adultery. These are mob rule situations, and each time justice is perverted. Except for in the woman caught in adultery, where Yeshua says, wait a minute, stop. We're not doing this right. You are not following the prescription for how this is supposed to occur. You're committing sin too, in bringing her to me to be the judge. I'm not a judge in Israel. Who am I to, to cast the first stone? Who are you to cast the first stone? He's he's drawing this distinction there. It's not what most people say, where it's just, well, the law's no more, we're just supposed to be forgiving and lovey-dovey. No, he's making a distinction between, you're doing this all wrong, and in so doing, you are caught bringing sin upon yourself. In the Torah, in the instructions that God gives, the proper method for prescribing the death penalty always includes an investigation, always includes a trial by impartial judges. Every single time, there is no mob rule. Every single case. So wait, okay, so capital punishment. All right, we, we can accept that capital punishment is something that, uh, that God condones, that God wishes for humans to engage in. So how does this square with the concept of seeking and preserving life? <laughs> our, our common morality our definition of what's good, tells us that we should preserve the lives of those who have killed others. Because if we don't, we run the risk of becoming like them ourselves. But something that we've seen in since the chapter 4 of Genesis, there is a curse on the earth when innocent blood is spilled. And that blood, we read in Revelation, cries out, Oh God, how long? How long until you avenge us, until this justice is enacted on our behalf? Because justice is just as important as mercy is. Taking the life of those who have no respect for life, who have removed the future hope and potential and relationship of a person who have caused heartache for everyone who knew that person, they've demonstrated that they have no respect for life. And proper justice requires that that is then visited upon them. Our common way is to take them, put them into a prison, rehabilitate them. Never, rarely happens. I won't say it never, but it rarely happens. And then let them out. But if we do this and that person kills again, who's responsible? Is it that person that's responsible at that point? Or is it the responsibility of the people who let him live? 
the responsibility of the people who saw this person who had no respect for life, and because they so wanted to protect themselves, protect their own sense of morality, their own sense of right, that they completely forget about justice and their overwhelming zeal for mercy. And it ends up costing more lives, whether it be more lives in prison or more lives after the person gets out of prison. Understand that a person who has repented, a person who has turned back from their evil ways, they're made right before God. But it doesn't change what's happened here on earth. It doesn't change the cycle of life. There is still a, a vengeance due that person. In fact, we are all due death. It's just a matter of when we get it, right? So the prescription for this, the prescription for preventing future heartache, future death at the hands of a killer is to take the life of the killer. So whose role is it to take that life of the killer? Who Who is the one that is supposed to be that arbiter of justice? Well, it's government. Human government is supposed to do that. Early on in Scripture, that government was composed of priests and Levites and judges that were set up. Not really codified in any way, in any overarching structure. It wasn't until after Israel asked for a king that they started to, to get their own government structure that would then be responsible for them. But since then, there's no going back to that at this point in history. There's no point in going back to that pre-kingdom type of society, that theocratic society, as some call it. Romans 13 speaks on this, and it speaks of human governments being the means of God's vengeance upon those who do wrong. That is the proper role of government in the world. If someone causes a death, if someone maliciously and with intent causes a death, and we'll read that in Torah later, there's a difference between murder and manslaughter. If someone causes a malicious death with intent, it's the government's job to return that to the person, acting as God's means of vengeance in the world. Because mercy and justice, they have to be meted out in equal measure. Simply giving mercy perverts justice. Simply giving only justice and no mercy, it perverts mercy. The man who sheds the blood of a man, by man, his blood should be shed. Repayment in kind. Repayment in kind is something that we see all through Scripture. It is a regular recurring theme. And it is government's role to do such a thing. So finally, as we proceed through the text, the text turns to the topic of covenant. So what is a covenant? We're really unfamiliar with this term, unless you have an HOA, a homeowners association, they might make you sign a covenant for the community, right? The rules and regulations for what you're allowed to do with your property within this greater organization. Is that what it's talking about? In a way, yeah. yeah. It, it, a covenant, simply put, is an agreement to act in a certain way. Very simple. A covenant is not so much of a legal contract as we like to think of it. A covenant is a way of putting your life and your reputation and your honor on the line as the collateral for the keeping of the terms of the agreement. Not so much a legal recourse if you break it, but more like 
your honor and your reputation is completely ruined from then on if you break it, and the terms of the covenant no longer apply. Again, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on this topic today. We're simply going to lay some groundwork, get a foundation set that we can build upon in later episodes. We'll have a whole lot of opportunities to discuss this topic, the topics of sacrifice and covenant, much deeper in future. For now, let's simply recognize several of the features of this particular covenant. Who is the covenant in effect with? That's always described in the covenant itself. This particular covenant is with all living creatures and the earth itself. It's not just all living creatures, it's with the earth itself. What is the length of this covenant? How long will this covenant stand? Will it be in effect? It's everlasting. It's forever covenant. This doesn't end. What are the terms of the covenant? Well, the terms of the covenant are always present within the covenant itself. In chapter 9, verse 11, it says, I will establish my covenant with you, and that there never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And as with nearly all covenants, there is a sign given to the validity of the covenant, something that we can look at and say, yes, this covenant still stands. And the sign in this case is the rainbow, God's bow from his bow and arrow hung in the sky with the arrow pointing upwards away from the earth. We do this in the West when we make a covenant, a marriage covenant, because a marriage is a covenant. The terms of the covenant, those are our vows. The length of the covenant, till death do us part. And then there's a sign of the covenant, the ring that goes on the finger. In every society, there is some sort of token that is exchanged. So in the ancient Near East, covenants also contained several other things, things that were common for the completion of a covenant. There was always a sacrifice of some sort. Hence, we see the covenant and sacrifice being melded together in one. There was usually a meal between all of those who signed on to the covenant. There was, in many cases, there was an exchange of salt. That's not really something that we read about a whole lot in Scripture. We do read of a covenant of salt, and we'll talk about that more when we get there. And each of these things, as we go through Scripture, we'll talk more about them, because there's plenty of covenants that we will approach, that we will that we'll have to touch on, that we'll have to dig into the terms of, and so on and so forth. But for now, we really just need to appreciate the large number of topics that are present in these, this chapter right here. There's a lot going on here, and each one of these is so vitally important to things as they progress. All of these are going to be foundational stepping stones for future episodes, for future understanding of things that Bible's trying to discuss and talk about. And the things that are described here are things that we, all of the humans that find our existence after the flood, that we're bound by. Each one of these topics has been presented earlier in some way, whether it be sacrifice or covenants or even the killing of a man by another man. We've seen these discussed. All things that are going to be discussed in much greater detail. So where does this leave us in the Noah cycle? Because there is a cycle, right? What does this have to say to that larger picture? What is this part of the puzzle, part of the cycle? What does it say to us? Our cycle, it began with judgment, right? Judgment and justice enacted through a process of separation. One side separated towards an uncreative act of joining together, and the other side towards a new creation by remaining separated and moved into this new place, this new existence. And then that's where the pattern 
continues into the idea of recreation, or renewal, redemption. This Parsha then moves the development of the cycle after the new creation towards the topics of those two pieces that I mentioned earlier, those being sacrifice and covenant. Two things that you have to have hand in hand as the next piece of a new creation. You've entered into new creation, now you enter into covenant with God through some sort of sacrifice. As we go through the many different types of examples of this cycle occurring, we'll see these steps in all of them, every single one of them, whether it be the new covenant through Yeshua, whether it be the exodus from Egypt, whether it be even in the Davidic covenants. And the, the cycle is present both before and after as the whole cycle continues. And it's one that continues and rolls through Scripture. And it's, it's almost fractal in that it happens in individuals' lives as well as in the life and existence of a nation. And it, they're all kind of wrapped together. And we see each of these pieces in upcoming examples. For example, Abraham. In his story, he is separated from his family, that act of judgment. He is judged as righteous or judged as the one to found the nation that God is creating. He is then recreated in new creation with this promise of a family that will stem from him rather than the family that has come before. And then a covenant is enacted with a sacrifice, and then his story continues. We'll see this in the story of the exodus from Israel as well. A judgment coming in the form of plagues onto the people of Egypt. Then there is a separation. One set of people separated towards death and destruction. Another set of people set free and brought through the chaotic waters to the other side into a new creation of Israel until they reach Mount Sinai where there is a covenant that is cut and a sacrifice that occurs. And even in the new covenant of Yeshua, because we're each judged before God and that judgment then passes on to Yeshua. He becomes the one that is sent towards death. But death can't keep him. Death tries to grasp him, and it can't keep him. He, he escapes. And in his escape, he allows all of us to cast our death onto his death. And in so doing, we then can no longer be held by death either. Which then is the new creation through the covenant that is created through his sacrifice. So in our experience of entering into the covenant of Yeshua, there are some questions that we need to ask as we enter into this covenant. What are the terms of that covenant? Who are the parties involved in the covenant? Is it a one-way covenant in which God is responsible for all parts of it, like, like this covenant or like the Abrahamic covenant? Or is there some sort of responsibility, some sort of two-way give and take that's part of this covenant? Is there a sign of this covenant, something that we can look to and see as part of the fulfillment or the existence of this covenant? What does it mean to be part of the new covenant? These things that I just talked about, these questions, they'll help us to define our own relationship to God, what we can expect from Him and what He expects from us. And just as in a marriage, there are terms created in the bond, those vows that are spoken and then assented to by both parties. So too, our covenant relationship with God, it has terms. And it's our due diligence as people who are part of this covenant to figure out what those terms are. 
once we know those terms, to then live by those terms, to exist in those terms. And so we've got to search. We've got to do some defining. I'm not going to give you the answers to the questions I just asked. Those are things I want you to search up for yourself. Open scripture. Do some digging. Find out what are the terms of the new covenant. Who are the people involved in the new covenant? The parties. What are the terms? What is the time frame of the covenant? So on and so forth. And as we search, we need to keep asking the question of life. And all that we do, we have to dare to hide and seek life. Shalom. Thank you for tuning in to Deresh Chai. If you would like to find out more or support this ministry, head over to SeekLifeSC.com. That's SeekLifeSC.com. We'll see you again next time as we Deresh Chai, as we seek life. Shalom.